Morning, morning. I feel like I'm addressing the UN this morning with, uh, with all these flags around. Are you ready to dive back into Corinthians? Bibles at the ready? Good, good, good. Um, well, this morning we're going to be talking about um, foolish things. It's part of the reason I'm speaking again. And um, earlier on this week, on Tuesday, I posted a status on Facebook. Here it is. And it says, what's the most foolish thing you've ever done? (laughs) Some of you are panicked now because you've realised that you commented on that status. (laughs) I didn't say it was for a sermon. Um, I was surprised at the amount of responses it got, over 20. But it perhaps would be too cruel to to share them with you this morning. Um, Oh, go on then, just a couple. (laughs) Um, So Jason informed us that um, he once wore his sister's dress to school, which I thought was very interesting, slightly telling. Um, Brenda said that she got very excited that Tesco had pistachio nuts as free samples, and after she grabbed one, realised they weren't pistachios, but actually spat out olive pips. (laughs) (sighs) Grim. (laughs) Where has she gone? I thought she was going. Right, anyway... Enough of that. There is loads, so if you want to find me on Facebook, you can read them. But I thought perhaps, um, out of fairness, I should share with you the, the, the most foolish thing that I've ever done. So it was when I was in school, um, and a friend of mine invited me to come and play football on the school field. Um, now, anyone who knows me knows I'm not really into football or sport per se, but I promise this is a true story. Um, and in fact, it may be part of the reason that I'm not into sport um, anymore. So I left my house with plenty of time, it was about a mile or so to the school field, um, and I arrived, and the school field is surrounded by a five foot high metal fence uh, with spikes on top. Now I knew um, that I could walk around the school field to a little wooded area that we used to call the spinny, and there was a gap in the fence that I could get through. But then again, it was only five foot high, and I was young and more agile than I am now, um, and I knew that if I could climb it, I could stand with my feet between the spikes, Um, and jump onto the field. So that's what I did. Now, at the time, I was wearing some flared jeans. It wasn't the 70s. They came back into fashion briefly in the 90s, I promise. Um, And what I hadn't realised was that my jeans had fallen either side of the spikes. So when I jumped forward, it tore through my jeans. I span upside down and was left hanging on the fence. This was further compounded when I noticed Mr. Gratton, the PE teacher, with an after-school club running in my direction. At that point, I had exactly two choices. I could remain hanging to be rescued, face the humiliation and most likely the telling off, or I could free myself from my trousers and run for it. Um, Thankfully, mercifully, as I tried to free myself, my trousers tore and I was able to run home with my trousers flapping in the wind. Um, but I tell you this story because I want, in a little bit, I'm going to tell you that, that God can use foolish people. And I want you to know that I'm speaking from experience. Um, so you know, now you know. <laughs> okay, let's get into Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1. So last week, um, we started looking at this letter of Paul's. Um, his second letter, actually, but the first of two letters that survived long enough to be included in our Bible. And we spoke about the historical and cultural context of Corinth last week, how it was a Roman colony, how it was located in Greece, 
a seaport, um, home of the Isthmian Games, and with every religion and race represented there. And we spoke about how it was morally lax. To live like a Corinthian was to indulge in sexual immorality, drunkenness and debauchery. And we also spoke about how the Greeks prided themselves on their knowledge and their wisdom. Uh, and we borrowed David Pawson's description of Corinth, which was that it was intellectually proud, materially prosperous, and morally corrupt. I'm sure they didn't put it on their welcome sign. But not too dissimilar to today. Um, there was much in the text last week that we didn't get a chance to look at on a Sunday morning. Uh, and Anesha prepared for the series to last until 2020. That's going to be the case um, every week. But what I said and what I hope is still true is that we can give you a framework so that when you study this for yourself and when you study this in your life groups, you can get more out of it than perhaps you would have previously. So I hope you had a good time in your life groups this week. One of the things I didn't mention last week, um, and that is good to mention at the start, um, perhaps something fairly obvious but worth remembering, um, when the letter was originally written to the Corinthians, it wasn't written with chapters, chapter headings, verses, and little subheadings throughout. Those have all been added at a later date to make our Bibles easier to read. So we just need a little bit of care that as we're reading through, we don't suddenly assume that Paul is on a new topic just because there's a subheading that's been inserted for us. And what we're going to find, actually, as we go over the first sort of four or five weeks of this series, is that, that Paul remains very much on the same topic, just offering different little thoughts and different ways of explaining the same thing. So I'll give you an example. Um, last week we finished on verse 17, which reads, For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And then the NIV adds this subheading, Christ crucified is God's power and wisdom. But Paul hasn't finished his train of thought. Because the next passage carries straight on and he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. He's making the same point. He starts by declaring that he didn't preach the gospel with wisdom or eloquence and he says it's because the message itself appears as foolishness unless you've been saved, in which case it's the power of God. So I just want to advise a little bit of care as we read through that we remind ourselves of what we have read and where we're going because you'll start to see it all join up as we read. Okay. Let's back up a little bit. Let me give you some more context. So, as well as looking last week at the church in Corinth, we also looked at Paul, the chap who wrote the letter to the Corinthians. And we talked about how he'd been an ardent persecutor of Christians um, until he met Jesus. And then we talked about how his life changed and he travelled the world being a witness to Jesus. And that's how he ended up in Corinth for a year and a half. But one thing we didn't mention was that before he arrived in Corinth, he actually visited the capital of Greece, um, Athens. And we can read about that in Acts chapter 17, which is two books to your left. So if you want to flick back, we're going to have a little look in Acts chapter 17. Now it says while he was in um, Athens, starting at verse 18, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? 
Others remarked he seems to be advocating for foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, May we know this new teaching that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we'd like to know what they mean. All the Athians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking and listening to the latest ideas. Remember how last week I told you that they, uh, in Greece, they, it was all about novelty. It was all about what was new, what new idea was being brought to them. And here we find two groups being represented. represented. Uh, both of them with very different ideas about what was wise and what was the right way to live your life. We have the Epicureans and we have the Stoics. Now I'm not, I don't know a huge amount about philosophy. Chance studied philosophy, so I asked for her help on this section. Um, but the Epicureans believed that you needed to live in such a way that you could get the greatest amount of pleasure out of the life that you have. They were atheists, they denied God's existence and they denied life after death, and they were materialists. They felt that this life was the only thing that you had, and so you should try and get the most out of it. Essentially, it was a sort of a mild form of hedonism, where its chief ethic was that individual pleasure is the most important thing in life. And I think many people hold to that philosophy today, although they wouldn't perhaps call themselves Epicureans. The Stoics, however, believed that this was foolish. This was a wrong way to live. They were pantheists, which means they didn't believe in a God particularly. They believed that everything was God. And they said that to get the best out of life, you needed to learn self-control. And you needed to rise above your destructive emotions and live in harmony with the world. A bit like Spock from Star Trek. And apathy was regarded as the highest virtue. Whatever came your way, you just needed to put up with it. Fight your way through. And both of these uh, two groups would debate each other at a place called Mars Hill. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. <laughs> That's the kind of three peaks I'd like to do. Um, but no, fortunately, that's actually what it looks like. <coughs> Much less chocolatey. And Paul seemed to be having something new to say. He seemed to have a new idea that he was presenting him. So they invited him to come along and give his message at this place. And we're told the results of this meeting at the end of Acts 17. It says that a few listened to him and became believers. And it says, others, however, mocked him. They sneered at him. And I think this is a reaction that we sometimes see today as well, isn't it? Sometimes when people hear about Jesus and the message, they sort of roll their eyes or tut, laugh it off, like everything that we have to say is just sort of nonsense. And it says the rest said that they would like to hear him again on the subject, which sort of sounds quite nice. Sounds like they might be interested, but really it's a, it's a delaying tactic. They were de displaying an, an academic detachment from what Paul had to say. It hadn't reached their hearts it hadn't changed their lives. They were just sort of had a nice lecture. But there was no impact. And again, it's an attitude we see today. You know, the Jesus stuff is fine for you, but I sort of need more evidence before I'll believe. And I think largely because of this, Paul didn't spend much time in Athens. He hardly stayed there at all. He moved very quickly on to Corinth, where he spent a year and a half. Because their apparent wisdom wouldn't allow them to hear the gospel that Paul was trying to preach. 
Now, there was another attitude that we just need to talk about before we look at the, the text that Paul encountered when he reached Corinth. And that was the attitude of the Jews. And we're told in Acts 18 that they were abusive, that they persecuted him and the followers of Jesus in much the same way Paul had done himself. And it was offensive. They were offended that Paul claimed that Jesus was the Messiah, the one promised from God. And you see, they were expecting someone who was going to change the political landscape in their favour. Someone that would establish Israel as the centre of the world. They were expecting a great military leader who would help them overthrow the Roman Empire and take back their land. Someone who would perform miracles of might and strength and lead them in a holy war. Which is a word that we often hear in the news today, isn't it? And they couldn't reconcile the Jesus that Paul was preaching about, this man who had died on the cross, with their own expectations of the promised Messiah. See, in their minds, Jesus had been an utter failure. A man who had made big claims about um, what he could do and who he was, but died in weakness and shame on a cross, which was a form of execution for foreign rebels. It cemented the Romans' rule over them and nothing more in their eyes. So these were the types of opposition that Paul faced as he tried to spread the gospel. Mockery, intellectual dismissal and outright opposition for those who had different expectations of the kind of God that he should be. And with that background in mind, let's read the next few passages of the letter of Corinth. So I'm going to begin in verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Paul wants the Corinthian church to see that despite all of their perceived wisdom, all of their great teachers and philosophers, none of it, none of it has led people to God. And instead God uses what the world considers foolish to save people. Neither Jews or Greeks can see this. Both of them needed to see before they believed, but in different ways. Jews wanted to see signs and miracles. They wanted proof that he was the Messiah they were expecting. Um, And the Greeks wanted to see with their mind. They wanted logic and rationality. They wanted to be able to um, find their way to God through their own intellect, their own reasoning. And God doesn't give either party what they want. Instead, he sent Jesus to live amongst us, to show us a radically different way of living. Not with military strength, but in service to one another. He teaches Um, people to care for the weak and the widow and the poor and the orphan. And he demonstrates his kingdom on earth, as we've heard about at the start of this year. And then at the height of his popularity, he's executed. 
And we claim that this is the most important event in the whole of human history. There were many, many people that were executed during the Roman times and since. Many that were crucified. So why was this so important? Well, firstly, we claim that this man was the first person who was truly innocent. The first person who had done nothing wrong, committed no crime, lived a life that was completely sin-free. And secondly, we claim that this man was not just a man, but God himself, through his own testimony. In fact, this was the only reason they could find to condemn him. Because if the claim was untrue, then it was blasphemy. And thirdly, we claim that the man did not just die a needless death on a cross, but died intentionally in the place of others, in the place of us. When he was on the cross, he called out tetelestai, which is a Greek accounting term, which means paid in full. He declared the debt of sin cancelled, completely satisfied, no further action required. Finally, he defeated death when he rose again after three days. And this is the word that Paul preached. This is what we preach, Christ crucified. There is power in that message. And wherever Paul preached it, people were saved. Many of you this morning, I know, would make that claim yourselves. You would say that that message, that knowledge of Jesus has saved you, has made a difference to your life. I would make that claim, as would Steve. Because once you believe, it changes you. It makes sense. It becomes real to you. It's a ridiculous, foolish thing to claim to the world, but it works. It works. Remember what Paul said in his introduction. He said, I always thank my God for you because of the grace given to you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Christ was alive to us. We told you about him and he became alive to you. Not because of a miraculous sign or because you worked it out logically, but because you believed. And when you believed, you were enriched in every way. And you know, sometimes I think we forget the power that we have in the message of the gospel. The power that we have to see lives changed. There was once a strong church who was passionate about Jesus. They preached the gospel and they saw people saved and they had the words, we preach Christ crucified, engraved over the doorway. And over time their passion for the gospel faded and ivy began to grow up over the doorway and it covered the words crucified and it only read, we preach Christ. So they preached about Jesus, the great man, and Jesus, the moral example, but they forgot about the cross. The ivy kept growing and soon it read, we preach, and Jesus was no longer spoken about. They just spoke about moral lessons and community spirit and feel-good sound bites until at last the sign just said we and the church was just a social gathering place like any other. The moral of the story is not to hire a better gardener but to keep the cross central. Are we sometimes so concerned about the foolishness or the oddity of our message that we forget that it works? that we forget that it's changed us, that it's made a difference to us? Do we sometimes make the message, try so hard to make the message palatable and easier for people to understand that actually we remove its power? I know sometimes I'm guilty of this. 
If we tell people about Jesus, not everyone will accept it. Paul knew this. Paul understood this. He showed us this. But to those that do, it's the power of God to see their lives changed. And maybe this morning, you know, you're kind of hearing that message for the first time. Maybe you've heard it a hundred times before and it's never really made sense to you, but today something's just clicked and you want to know more. I would say don't leave this morning without speaking to someone because there's something here that could change your life. Genuinely. Which brings me to Paul's second point. Continuing from verse 26, Paul says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us the wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Not only is the message of God foolish to the world, but the people that he uses are as well. God takes the lowly things, the common things, the ordinary things, and he makes them extraordinary. Why not go for the best? Wouldn't God want the brightest and best representing him? Surely a cleverly orchestrated marketing campaign and a few choice celebrities would get the job done in no time. Well, no, I don't think it would. I think God delights in using ordinary people because they're the ones who best reflect his glory and not their own. When Peter delivered his sermon in Acts 2, 3,000 people were saved. This is from a man who had previously denied even knowing Jesus. He was constantly putting his foot in it, saying and doing the wrong things. Yet God used him to start the church that now has over two billion members. Paul, who we've been talking about, who wrote this letter, was persecuted, killed, imprisoned Christians. And yet God used him to write most of our New Testament. And if you want to delve into the Old Testament, Noah was a drunk, Abraham was a liar, Moses was a murderer, Rahab was a prostitute, Elijah suffered with depression, David was an adulterer. The list goes on and on and on. Yet God uses all of them to reveal his glory. And in doing so, he cuts out the pride. The most basic and offensive sin is pride. Paul tells us, he tells the Corinthians that the only things that they should boast about is Jesus, who has become their wisdom, their righteousness, holiness and redemption. I could do several sermons on verse 30. Wisdom, righteousness, holy and redemption. Jesus has become all those things to them. And personally, I know that I would not be here doing the things that I'm doing, living the life that I'm leading if it were not for the grace of God. There's no way. God delights in using the foolish things of this world for his purposes. Me and everyone who commented on my Facebook status. And the rest of us as well. I want to finish this morning with a parable. It's not a parable that's found in the Bible. um, But I'm sure some of you will have heard it before. But I think it just gives a wonderful illustration of how God can use the things that appear foolish in this world. 
So a water bearer had two large pots, one hung on each end of a pole which he carried across his neck. One of the pots had a crack in it, while the other pot was perfect and always delivered a full portion of water. At the end of a long walk from the stream to his master's house, the cracked pot always arrived only half full. This went on for two years daily, uh, with the bearer delivering only one and a half pots of water to his master's house. Of course, the perfect pot was proud of his accomplishments. It fulfilled the design for which it had been made. But the poor crackpot was ashamed of its own imperfection. It was miserable that it was unable to accomplish what it had been made to do. After two years of enduring this bitter shame, the pot spoke to the water barrier one day by the stream. It's not a true story. Um, <laughs> I'm ashamed of myself and I apologise to you. Why, asked the bearer, what are you ashamed of? I have been unable for these past two years to deliver only half of the water because of this crack in my side. Water leaks out on your way back to the master's house. And because of my flaws, you have to do all the work and you don't get the full value from your efforts, the pot said. The water bearer felt sorry for the old cracked pot. And in his compassion, he said, as we return to the master's house, I want you to notice the beautiful flowers growing along the path. And indeed, as they went up the hill, the old crackpot took notice of the sun warming the beautiful wildflowers on the side of the path. And he was cheered somewhat. But at the end of the trail, he still felt that old shame because he'd leaked out. And so again, the pot apologised to the bearer for its failure. The bearer said to the pot, Did you notice that the flowers were only on your side of the path and not on the other pot's side? That is because I've always known about your flaw and I took advantage of it. I planted flower seeds on your side of the path, and every day when we walked back from the stream, you've watered them. For the past two years, I've been able to pick these beautiful flowers to decorate my master's table. Without you being just the way that you are, we would not have had this beauty and grace in the house. Even though the pot would seem useless to the world, and it would be foolish to keep using it, it's given new purpose by its master. In Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, which we're not studying at the moment, he describes us as jars of clay. Ordinary, fragile, easily broken. But he says it allows this all-surpassing power of God to be displayed in us. Could the um, band come back up, please? Let me just summarise my talk for you today. Two points, really, to take home. Firstly, we should never be afraid of the gospel. Even though it may appear foolish, even though it may appear not to make any sense, it's the way that God has chosen to save the world. It's the way that he's chosen to save you and me and everyone else who has yet to hear this message. And if you've heard that message today, perhaps for the first time, Perhaps as I was talking about who Jesus is and what he did for us, something just sparked inside of you and you want to know more, please, please speak to me or speak to someone else in the church who can tell you more about it. Because it is the power of God to save you, to change you. Secondly, we should never feel that we are too broken or foolish for God to use. Because God delights in using our flaws to demonstrate his glory. It's the way he chooses to work, to shine through our cracks, and to demonstrate his love to the world.
Let's pray.